Folks, I want to begin this episode with a story. Now, I have already shared on this podcast how I got back into this show. I was in the car with my wife, Sana. I was literally ready to retire from trumpet playing, really having anything to do with the trumpet. In my mind, it was something that I had done, and I had done it well, and I had done some cool things, but it appeared to me that my life was going on a different trajectory of which trumpet was not a part of it. That's what I was thinking. Well, my wife and I were traveling to the mall here in Hanoi, Vietnam, in a cab, just kind of talking with each other. And I had told her that I was going to quit and I was, I was done. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to focus solely on podcasting and building a podcast production business. And that's what my plan was. And she said, well, James, I think that you should continue with it. I think you should stick with it. And I said, well, I would have to have a really good reason to do that. And she said, well, I'm your wife. Isn't that reason enough? Well, you're right, Sana. That's a good point. If your wife says that you should do something, you do it for her. So I decided that I'm going to continue to play it. And if I'm going to do it, then I'm going to do it the very best that I can with the limited time and resources that I have at my disposal. And I'm just going to make the absolute best of it because that's really the way that you should approach anything. So that was, I think, in May of 2021. And I believe it was just a couple of weeks later, I had been sleeping and woke up in the morning and just this word was in my mind. It was this word that was in my mind when I woke up. It was ikigai. Now, I am not an expert on ikigai. In fact, I had heard the word just once or twice listening to uh, one of my podcast production clients, Ben Greenfield, who he has mentioned that word a couple of times. He and a couple of his guests over the years have mentioned it. But that was really my only exposure to the word. But there I was, I woke up and there was this word on my mind. And it wasn't just a passing thought, it was really pressing on me. And so I went onto my smartphone and I opened up Amazon.com and said, just typed in Ikigai. I want to know more about this. One of the first listings on Amazon.com was a book. It was written by the fellow we're about to meet in just a few seconds. It is titled Ikigai, The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life. And so I read the book, thoroughly enjoyed it, took away a lot of really great things from it. And I thought, you know what? If I have a platform such as a podcast, people should know about not, not just about the concept of ikigai, they should also know the person who has written extensively about it. And so I just reached out and said, hey, loved your book, want to do a podcast? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Here we are on the 5th of July, 2021. I just love stories like that, how things just kind of come together. They seem on the surface that they may be random, but I really don't believe that. I don't believe in random meetings or random events like that. It's, it's just a real pleasure to bring on to the show the author of the book, Ikigai, The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life, Hector Garcia. Welcome, my friend. Hello, James. It's an honor to be here. I love the story. I love using another word, not random, but serendipity. I, lo- I like the word serendipity. And I love the story because you connect all the dots in a serendipity way. I love the way that you say the word serendipity. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm from Spain. My Spanish serendipity. 
Yes, serendipity. <laughs> serendipity. <laughs> yeah, so uh, maybe that's an idea I have for a for a book in the future. Like serendipity is not all about luck because you, I believe you need to have all the the story to, that you you have thought. You, you have to have all the ingredients in place to make the recipe start happening. When I received your email, hey, come to the podcast. So th these days I'm receiving lots of emails about podcasters. First of all, like, yes, another life lesson is you should always listen to your wife and she's writing one thing. I received many podcaster emails. Most of them are, okay, I have a podcast, but there is nothing that stands out. But with you, this mix of the trumpetist and the podcast, and you are in Hanoi, I've been really like, I couldn't forget you. It's it's a something, it's a mix that it's forever in my mind. I will yeah. remember uh, James, trumpetist podcasters. I've written a lot about Ikigai and some people, one of the main questions that people bring is like, does it have to be one thing? Hector, I'm sorry to interrupt, but before we go on to into what you're saying, I was wondering if we could just get a working definition of Ikigai. So my understanding is that it's kind of like a, a purpose in life, but it's it maybe something a little bit more complex than that. So could you just give us a overview of the term? Ikigai, it's a Japanese word that is composed of Japanese characters that mean life. And it's life in general, not only for human beings. It's for anything that has life in it. An animal, a dog, a cat could also have like an ikigai. And guy is something that is worthwhile. You can think of it as your purpose in life, or I like it to one very nice thing to think about it is that thing that makes you wake up looking forward to your day in the morning. We all have like some days that we we wake up, okay, this is not going to be like a good day. But if every day you are not looking forward to your day, you have to make some changes in your life to, to start looking for your ikigai. I'm very happy again with your story because our book is the first book about Ikigai that was written. Now, I think at the beginning, there were some copies of the book, but now the whole concept has taken, there are like hundreds of books, more than a hundred books of Ikigai that are last time I checked. We were the pioneers, the first book about Ikigai. And when was the book written? At the end of 2014. Really? It was ori originally written in Spanish. And it was very unknown. It was written in Spanish and now is published in 60 languages, which makes it have the weird honor of it's the most translated originally written in Spanish book ever. My goal was to do a little bit what I did with you is to put that, that word. You said that the author should be more well known, but I, I, I care about the concepts to be more powerful than ourselves. And the idea was to put that word into the people's minds and not only Japanese people. So I wanted to be like geisha, samurai, or sushi, a Japanese word that all the world should know. Because also as an engineer, I like, we have a concept of compression. You can ask your friend, what is your purpose in life? What is that thing that makes you look forward to your days every day? It's a very long sentence, right? But yeah. you can ask them, what is your ikigai? Got it. So this sounds very simplistic, but it's very powerful because you can also use it if you're a parent, you can use it with your kids. Instead of asking them, what do you want to be when you grow older? Or what profession do you want to have? 
you can ask your kids, what is your Ikigai? And they will start thinking deeper. They will not think only about, okay, I want to be this because I want to make money. Maybe they start thinking, I love painting or I love playing the piano. So this is the idea of Ikigai. It's, it's nothing complex. And from there, we have built like a philosophy we can go. We could go on for days, couldn't we? Yes. <laughs> something. Okay. So you wrote the book in 2014 and you were kind of a pioneer, but the term ikigai certainly is not. It's, I mean, it wasn't invented. No, no. That's something that's been there forever. That's also something I claim that we are not inventors of nothing. We just popularized the concept. One thing that we did, we're kind of like inventors, is the concepts that we put around the word ikigai and the type of philosophy. One thing we did is we went to the village of the longest living people in the world. We were there living with with them and interviewed them. It's in south of Japan. We are also not scientists, but we collected all their lessons. And that's one of the central chapters of our book. And one of the questions was, well, the first question to them was not about their diets. We asked them, what is your Ikigai? Okay. To all of them. So that's one of the ingredients of Ikigai is like, what do you do to have a long and happy life? Only in good health, you want to have a long life. Mm-hmm. One of the keys seems to be they don't really retire in the sense that we have in the Western world. In Spain, we have this image that one day I will retire and do nothing and be in the beach and drinking mojitos. That's not a good strategy. Research shows that if you do nothing, you might get depressed and get some illness. You know, your your first chapter of your book is just titled Ikigai, and then you have kind of a subtitle, The Art of Staying Young While Growing Old. That's one of the tenets that we we have, and that's, that's from Japanese spirit. Uh-huh. That's something I felt from the Japanese since I've been living here. And then the, the Ikigai is something that it may be something that you, that is your means of sustenance, but it's not necessarily, or maybe it could be that what you do for a living is part of your ikigai, but it's not the whole of it. Could you dive into a little bit about that? That That's another thing that we don't, so this is one of the things, all the cultures in the world, they, they see ikigai in a slightly different ways, mm. purpose. I'm going to tell you how I see it. And this is something I've learned like We've had lots of success in India and they see purpose and Ikigai. It has taken its own direction, Ikigai in India. The way I see it, it's an underlying thing that is inside you. I see it as a compass. There is something inside me that it should be heading to this direction, to the left, for example. Right. Uh, But... Every day doing things that are making me head 50 degrees to the right. And I'm starting to feel like things are not in good place in life. So that, that's not a good situation. It happens to all of us in life. There are some times we feel this thing. That, that means that you are not aligned with your Ikigai. You can also see it like a compass or you can see it like a radio that you are tuning like old radios and it's not very tuned or like tuning an instrument also could be the analogy. When there is tension in your life like this, it means you're not aligned with your Ikigai and you have to make adjustments until you're doing the things that 
make you feel good. I'm sorry to interrupt, but can we dive into that just a little bit? Because it seems to me that when you are pursuing your ikigai, it's only natural that there's going to be resistance that comes along. How do you know what yeah. is tension and how do you know what is like just resistance while you're pursuing your mission or your purpose in life? This is one of the main questions that I make myself. There are times in your life, and this is also personal, it's time to try many things. I think it's good to do that when you're, for example, in your 20s. You can start trying out many things. We can, for example, the analogy of music. When you're 15 years old, you can try a couple of years, and maybe another couple of years, you try piano, and then another, you try guitar, you try comp composing music, and then you try something else. After a while of trying things, I think you start having some tendency. And for this, I think friends and wives are important because they will keep you in check. And also having self-awareness is like, I'm doing this. And this is very difficult to, to, to answer your question. I think it's impossible and it's very personal to everyone to find a fine line where, okay, like, like you said, like, I want to quit a trumpet. That's a very personal thing. And it might be something emotional in the moment, or it might be true. You have to jump to another thing. I think the key is to separate phases in life, to try many things, and you can quit without feeling guilt. But I think when you start being in your 30s, when I see people who are successful, I would I would say successful and happy at the same time in their field, is people who have been doing more or less the same thing for 10, 15 years. I guess you've also seen, James, people who are successful in music and they also enjoy it. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's usually... Sometimes we feel like success is like from morning to night, but you have to pursue something for a long time. I think you always have this, this self-doubt. Okay, I've been in with this for eight years and maybe you go one month, it's like take a break, do something else and then see if you want to come back. But yeah, I don't have a perfect answer for this. Quitting too early is one of the tendencies that is happening in our society these days. So I would say as a general idea, keep keep doing something. And as you said, there is good nervousness. Yes. Let's make a theory today. I like new theories. All right. I think there is good resistance and there is bad resistance. Now we need to develop a method to detect this good resistance and bad resistance. Good resistance is the one that you're feeling when you are more or less in the book. We define also the book, the concept of flow, which is not from us, it's from uh, Mihaly. Good resistance is when you are going to start doing your thing in a daily basis. Let's say, for example, now you have to do your podcast. Maybe you feel some resistance before doing it. You do it, and I think it's good to check after you finish doing it. Did it feel good? Did I enjoy it? If you're feeling resistance and after two, three hours of doing it, you, you have less energy and you're hating it, maybe that's bad resistance. Our listeners maybe can relate when you are having a bad boss at work and you're hating your job. You try to enjoy it for three, four hours, but at the end of the day, you're feeling drained. Yeah, then maybe we can define good resistance and bad resistance. Do you, do you relate to this? Oh, I most certainly do. And I'll give you an example. Uh, and I hate to give, like, make myself the, the center of attention on this podcast. Even it. though it's my podcast, I reserve the right to tell personal stories on my own show. 
Thank you very much. But uh, speaking of resistance, my my wife, Sana, who is not American, she's Iranian, and we're in the process of getting a visa for her to reside in the U.S., and I'm here in Vietnam while we await just this visa to be approved. And just this past weekend, we heard from the visa center in Vermont, and it wasn't exactly the news that we wanted. It was basically we had submitted all the paperwork, but there was there was a couple of issues, so they couldn't they couldn't move on to the next level. When I got the news, I was really discouraged. Anyone who's dealt with the U.S. government knows that they work on their own schedule. Routinely takes six weeks to do something that, in my mind, can be done in six seconds, but that's just the way it is. And so we're waiting for weeks and weeks and weeks to get an answer. Finally, we get, we get a response from them, and it was basically, it's not perfect. We, we still need this couple of things. And so that was Saturday morning that I got this email from them. And the first part of Saturday, my goodness, I could barely walk. I was down in the dumps. I was like, oh my God, this thing is never going to get approved. I'm going to have to go back to the United States and I have to leave my wife here. And it's just all kinds of scenarios were going through my mind. We, we just took a look at the thing. We, I mean, we got a good nap. That's, that's important. Get a little sleep when you're stressed out. And then we just looked at this email and said, okay, this is what we have to do. We, we made a plan. And by the end of that day, we both felt, well, I think I, I felt good. I don't know how my wife felt because I don't know what's, what it's like to be her uh, being the applicant. But I felt good about it because we had actually made some real progress. Later that day, I felt it's just a small hiccup. We have to just do this one thing. We have a plan and we're going to do it. That resistance that we experienced, it was just a kind of a roadblock. What I'm hearing from you is that resistance that feels like a 20-foot wall that you can't possibly climb, that might be a sign that you're not following your ikigai. I'm thinking like this example is like, this is a wall that you just jump once, the bureaucracy, you have to deal with it. It's weird how human emotions work, right? Like, mm-hmm. in, And in one day it can shift. Mm-hmm. And that's very powerful. It's, I imagine it's not, let's go back again to, it's not the US government, but, but it's your boss that is making you feel bad every day. Yes, yes. And you're not feeling good at the end of the day. Like you said, okay, I have achieved mm-hmm. something. Then that's that's bad resistance to me. What your tendencies? What do you what do you tend to do in a natural way? For me, my story is that by training I'm like a like a software engineer, but I noticed that since more than twenty years ago, my tendency was to to start writing every morning, and that that gave me energy. And it's something that if I didn't do it in the morning, something felt off, like I needed to do it. And I didn't notice that that was happening until one day I said, okay, what, what happened these three days? It's like, I, I haven't written. Going back to the concept of Ikigai, I, I also see it sometimes as a, as a layer of substrate that holds everything. It, it might be for you, not only just one exact like task, okay, my Ikigai is writing, but it might be something when you look at the things that you enjoy, maybe you enjoy things that are always in connection with other people. You're feeling off at the end of the week because all the work that you have done 
have been lonely work. And this is something I think artists might struggle with because it's mostly lonely work. And maybe it's not that you're your art doing your art but maybe you need another ingredient maybe you need to do just with friends and meet them or maybe you go or maybe it's so bad what you really need to do is make a change and you're really an extroverted person what i'm going to like learn about who you are if you're an extroverted person you need to do things that are maybe you are you could become a good salesman of a car salesman and then the reverse, if I'm an introvert and I'm always in a work where I'm doing meetings with everyone, it's not about the work itself, it's the meetings might be draining energy from me. You can see your life as energy getting out of your system and then you start adjusting. We already talked about being young and I mean, when you're 17 and 18 years old, your brain isn't completely it's just not fully developed yet. And so you're not going to view the world the same as, as you are when you're 45, as I am. And I'm just thinking about my own memories from when I was a kid. When I was 17 and 18 years old, trumpet was my ikigai. I mean, that was my reason. That's what got me excited to get up in the morning. That was it. But here in, when I'm 45 years old, that's not exactly it. It's something that I do, but it's not everything that I do. It's not who I am. And so it's interesting how when you're younger, maybe in college, you're just obsessed with playing. Play, play, play. That's all that matters to you. And then you get out into the, quote, real world. You get out of college. You get a, quote, real job. If you're lucky enough to get a, a job that where you play your instrument full-time, my hat is off to you. Good for you. But it doesn't happen to everybody. But even if you do, you kind of hit that brick wall. It's like, man, there's more to life than playing. Sometimes... Like you said, you play, you play jazz, for example. It's like, man, there's got to be more to it than this. There's got to be more than just playing jazz by myself. And then you get with other friends. It just gives you energy. And then you might think, well, maybe people is part of my ikigai. Maybe it's not just playing my instrument. Maybe it's not just playing jazz and listening to jazz records. But maybe my ikigai is to teach jazz. Maybe it's to have a podcast about jazz. For me, it's interesting looking back at my my own life, how my own purpose and how the trumpet has changed in its role in my own personal ikigai. That's why we have these the circles of ikigai and one of the main circles is like what the world needs. What the world needs is not really about the whole world, but it might be the people around you. What do they mm -hmm. need from you? What do they need from James? Yeah, as you said, music has the power changing people's emotions and that can that can create a serendipity event in their lives. Mm -hmm. Maybe you make a couple fall in love when they listen to your music. I take that for myself is like I take my writing for me it was probably the same 20 years ago I wrote for myself and now I also think about my responsibility of my my words have the power to to change people's lives for example if the if the word guy goes to your mind even if it's through other people that has the power to to shift a little bit your life to be better. So that should be the purpose of uh, having a whole ikigai. Is like you should also find ways to help other people. You can start small. Like sometimes we forget how say some nice words to a friend who needs them it can be very important for them. An analogy I used to 
use is like you can make bread in your neighborhoods. That would be okay. You will be selling bread and you make money. But if you make your mind, okay, I'm going to make the best bread in the town and my bread shop is going to be the most beautiful one in the neighborhood. You will start changing people's lives because they will be having the best bread that they can have in their homes. And that might shift their lives a little bit for good. We all start doing this with what we do. It gives you more motivation and purpose like to do things not only for yourself, but for, for others. And I think we are, again, going back to when we are young and we are 15 or even 20. And I think especially men, we are very, we don't care about anything. We're like, okay, this is my obsession. I'm just mm. going to do it. What's well, interesting that you bring up money because it's great to be obsessed with something and it's great to have your passion on something. But if it doesn't pay the bills, well, speaking of wives, well, your wife is going to be angry with you if you, if your obsession is interfering with your ability to put food on the table. You just have to have that that proper balance. And, and people listening to this are artists, we're musicians, trumpet players, and it's just an ongoing struggle to find that balance between playing and having that, quote, day job. And I was just wondering, maybe you have some, maybe not the perfect answer, but having written the book on Ikigai, maybe you have some thoughts on how can someone go about pursuing their Ikigai while still having uh, something that, on the surface, it doesn't appear that it has to do with their mission in life. And also, how how can maybe they can find a job that is aligned with their ikigai, even though it's not necessarily what they prefer to do? So, yeah, I think for this, for artists, it's going to be always a struggle. Mm-hmm. It's always been like that. My strategy is, as you said, like, keep your day job. I imagine it always as a, a long tail. I think in all industries, it's only the top 10 or 20 can make the living. In fact, for, I don't know, for musicians, but uh, it might be very similar to in publishing, even with our book being b- very successful, I, I have to have a day job mm-hmm. to pay the bills. Right. And I keep writing, is my secondary income. And my strategy is to start, uh, you're bringing your wife, I will bring mine too, to convince my wife to, to quit my day job. I'm bringing like third and fourth, I'm trying to build other incomes that's where i'm struggling the most and for music it could be something like okay you have your you're playing your you're doing your gigs and getting paid and maybe you start having on the internet you start selling your music somehow but then then you can do something that you're doing you're doing your podcast that you can do all kinds of things these days it's one of the best times where you can start building an ecosystem where you can start making money. The problem Mm -hmm. is that it is very difficult to make that quantity of money substantial. And maybe a more pragmatic thing might be, maybe you can change your career in your day job to be aligned. You can work in a company that is in the music industry. Like you can be like an event producer, for example. Mm-hmm. Or you can even make your own production company. Maybe you find that that's not really what you you like the music to be your side gig. 
Right. But if it becomes your main thing, maybe you don't like it. So that's also a very thin line that you have to check with yourself. I think a lot of musicians think that if I don't make my living playing music, then I'm a failure. I don't agree with that at all. That's a bad mindset. It is. You realize like like night really like nine. <laughs> right. And there is nothing bad with it. And and yeah. even if you do make your living playing music, do you even like it? The music industry, I've heard so many stories about how it is just absolutely soul-crushing. It seems to me like you can chase this magical uh, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and then you get there, you get to the promised land, and then you're like, oh, is this really it? You put all of your eggs in the basket of, I have to play, or else I'm just, I just haven't arrived, or I just haven't, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a success if I don't make my living playing my instrument. And I think that's even bad for your creativity. For mm. me, it's like I feel safe. I think safety is very important. Like you said, like I'm okay if I write a bad book. There's nothing wrong with it. You feel all this pressure. But if that pressure is out of the table, it will even help you to create not bad albums, but it might be something alternative. And maybe the third and the fourth one, you come up with a new style. Mm-hmm. When you see very creative people not always but you see many stories like this like for example Franz Kafka arguably probably one of the best writers in the in history he had a day job Albert Einstein he was working in a patent office this served him okay I'm safe I can I can do my things in the afternoon and mm-hmm. he came up with all these ideas and then when he stopped working in the patent office, he kept doing things, not mm-hmm. bad, but he was not as creative as when he was in the patent office. Hmm. So I find these things funny. Like there is something there to being like, okay, I'm safe, but I'm also a little bit tense. But if you put put all the eggs in one basket, maybe that might affect mm-hmm. your creativity and it might direct your creativity to only one thing. Okay, I have to make something good. Right. I don't know for you, James, but when I think like, okay, I have to make something good and there is lots of pressure, it's not usually good. When I wrote Ikigai, we originally we thought, okay, this book is going to be a, a normal book that will sell 2,000 copies in Spain. It happened. And later I have written other books, like more direct, okay, now I'm officially have a successful book then i should be able to write more Uh, and that's not true it's very mysterious and Mm. i think it's for all artists i think it's very similar all right well hector i wanted to pick your brain a little bit about this concept called flow and it's maybe something that people are familiar with you went into such detail about being in a state of flow i don't know exactly the right question to ask, but can you just describe flow and how it contributes to a person fulfilling their ikigai? Flow is this state that you get into when you're working on a task and you forget the passage of time. After you've been into this task, it's a very human thing. And after two hours, you forget Okay, it's been two hours. It can be also like alone time, like you're even flow by yourself when you're in a task, or it can be flow with people. Like you're in a party that you're enjoying a lot and time flies. And you're in a good conversation with someone and time flies. When you're not in flow, is the reverse. Like every five minutes is like a drain. We should aim for our lives to be in these states of flow as much as possible because the more 
you've lived in flow, the happier you've been in your life. The more you've been in flow, the better life you've had. This brings us to another concept that is underlying in the Ikigai philosophy that we put together. And now it's like everyone thinks that this it's part of Ikigai. Is, is, we put it there, existentialism. So when I read lots of existentialist philosophers, the main takeaway I took is like, we can agree that we were all born at a certain time and we're giving uh, this life. And you can have many beliefs also. We don't, like in India, for example, they many people believe in rebirth and you can believe in an afterlife, but we can all agree that we have this life now in the planet Earth. It's very mysterious, but okay, we have it. And we will die at some point. Some people will die before, later, and that's something, even rich people, poor people, whatever. Existentialism is telling you, also our Ikigai philosophy is also telling you, you should at least aim to make the best of it, of this time that you have been given. You don't have to waste it. Uh, and that's the worst feeling when you're 80 or 90, when you ask people who are in their 90s and 90s, the most thing that they regret is the times that they wasted in their lives. Have you had this flow? Of course, you are not going to be always flowing, but I take a good day after, uh, at the end of the day, if I being like, I call them personally, I call them flow sessions. So I usually put a flow session in the morning where I focus on my writing and I go at least two hours. Then I get tired and I get out of flow but and I can do other things. And then in the afternoon, I usually do a one or two, depending on how tired I am. I have these flow sessions. That was a good day. I don't need uh, like anything else. Those were good times. What What does a flow session look like for you? To, to be in flow, to go back to the resistance that we brought before, like you have to be in a in a good state where you are working on something. There is a right level for this. The analogy of music is perfect. If you don't know anything to play piano and you're starting, the first piece is very easy. But after one hour, you try something that is like for someone who has been playing the piano for five years. Then you will start feeling very frustrated. It's above your level of competence. It's too much. And I think this is also something important. If we have people who are music teachers, I believe a very good teacher, not only for music, is the one that is selecting what the person who is learning, the pupil, is capable of at that moment. And I think the best mentors and teachers in the world are the ones who are perfectly tuning. So it would be the perfect piano piece for your level, which is slightly above your level, but not too much. So at the end of the two hours playing the piano, you will feel, oh, wow. At the beginning of the two hours, I thought I would not be able to. But after the two hours, I achieved it. If you do this without a teacher, with yourself, you have to be wise. This also happened when you are too young. You say, okay, I can do this. And you select something that is too much. Then you become frustrated. You're like, okay, I couldn't do it. For me, I select things. I can achieve this. And to do my flow sessions, I have like, I create ritual where I, I prepare my favorite uh, green tea. I put it in the table. When I put the green tea in the table, I, I have to start, for me, is writing. I start drinking the green tea. And the only thing I can do, there is no internet. 
I'm 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 going to be writing, and then I will go on the live finish. You can take this for your own thing, and it can be applied if you like sports, like ski, like for example, the skiers know what this means to be flowing while you are if you're learning to ski if you go to a too difficult place you will, will become you will start falling all the time and you'll be very frustrated so you have to start skiing in the right places that's what flow is yeah you have to be wise to be in this line of the appropriate resistance or difficulty and you can apply it as a teacher or someone who is learning and to yourself speaking of playing my horn there are times where i feel like i'm in flow and there's times where nothing is going right and i just say i'm gonna put this back in the case for today i'm gonna pick it up tomorrow because this just is not my body is not responding i'm no less of a man I'm no less of a player. It just wasn't meant to be today. That's just maybe you need to go for a walk or think something else. That's uh, that's also yeah. something that comes up a lot in, mm-hmm. I think, in most like great discoveries in science. Like when you ask the person how they discover something, every all the ingredients were in the subconscious and then they were walking or doing something else or taking a shower. And then you have the great idea and then you come back. Yeah. And then you have to find your best. I guess at your age, you already have like a favorite times. The hormones are very important, I believe. And for me, it works in the mornings. Maybe for other people, it works better in the afternoons or at night. Well, we're running a little bit on time. Hector has a hard stop time that we have to respect. And I also have a life that I have to get back to. But I just want to pick your brain a little bit about, you wrote extensively about living in Japan. People listening in, I I have a premium uh, subscription that's only available on my mobile app. And Hector and I were kind of chewing the fat a little bit before we started the formal interview. And we talked about some really interesting things, most notably life in Japan. Of course, ikigai is a Japanese word. I was I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about oh by the way the app is at uh, jamesnewcomontrumpet.com/app so it's jamesnewcomontrumpet.com/app to get access to the app. Now I want to get a little bit about your experiences of course you live in Japan but you did a lot of your research interviewing Japanese people most notably in Okinawa and I know that Steve Jobs has got a lot of his inspiration for some of the Apple products while in Japan. Tell us about Japan, what it makes it so special, some of the lessons that you learned while you were researching this book. Next month is going to be 17 years that I've been here in Japan. And I was reflecting a lot. I don't know if I'm in my middle, in my 40s crisis or something. Well, I was, this question came to my mind is what the hell I'm doing here in Japan? Pondering this thought, I think the answer is that the, the whole mystery of it is what keeps me here. Solving it would say, okay, I've solved Japan. I, I think it will never happen. There is no way to solve. It's a very mysterious culture and it's never ending. That, that's one of the things that marvels me about Japan. And I think it's what marvels everyone. As a traveler too, one of the beautiful thing, well, mysterious things that happens to Japan is that usually when you travel somewhere, you do it once or twice, but... I have now lots of friends that they have Japan as a hobby. They come once or twice per year and we meet and then they can come back. And by the way, you you are invited to, if you come to Tokyo, we can ah, meet. Wonderful. And then you, you will start having more questions and you will have to come back again. I'll bring my three listeners with me. Well, I'll have green tea together. <laughs> 
and think about. We bring the stories of Steve Jobs. I think that's also one of Steve Jobs had Japan as a hobby. Like he would come back to Japan, keep exploring about Japanese culture. And another observation I had about Japanese, when you go somewhere, this is a hypothesis I have. Like when you go somewhere for travel, maybe you buy a souvenir and then you go back to your home and that's, that's all. Sure. But when you go to Japan and then you come back, I have many friends in Spain. Suddenly, they have something new in their lives. They take bonsai as a hobby. Maybe they take uh, collecting retro video games as a hobby. For example, my friend Francesc that I co-wrote, uh, Ikigai, his hobby is green tea. And he's gone very, very deep into green tea. He has done his own research and went to the little village where they make the best green tea in the world. He has gone very deep into green tea. There are all these Japanese things that you want to bring back to your home. It changes your life. Like you come to Japan and okay, wow. And, and Steve Jobs did that too. Okay, like this design of this temple. He loved uh, Japanese pottery from uh, a place called Kanazawa. They make things that are, they look too simplistic. I think that's where the subconscious of Steve Jobs brought him to, okay, I'm going to make a, a phone that looks like a brick that became the smartphone that we all have in the world. He took something from Japan and changed it with your own ingredients and, and then it becomes its own thing. And I think that's what I do in some kind of way too. Uh -huh. Like I take something from Japan and, and then it becomes this Ikigai concept that maybe something might criticize me these days there is this word not go there but there is this thing called cultural appropriation mm -hmm. or something yeah. I think appropriation or something oh, I, th I believe all cultures in the world are very precious and should be valued but there is in history beautiful ideas and things most of the times come up when you mix cultures and things and I think it's true also for art there is this book still like an artist when you have art is usually mixing different pieces mm. of this here here and creativity right. happens well you were talking a little bit about the people get out in the countryside and they're not checking Facebook every five minutes what is life like in some of the rural areas especially in Okinawa is really intrigued what you said about that lifestyle there especially so is this place in this capital city of okinawa is like but there is a different vibe even in the capital city of okinawa there is a vibe that is it's a little bit more like southeast asia more than japan in this village where there's 2800 people they live in like almost in the jungle they have the house there, there is no city center mm -hmm. the houses are like spread around they're always meeting each other they have these groups called moais and everyone belongs to one of these groups so you don't feel lonely and these moais they have their activities like every week you meet for to sing karaoke together it's all spread around people are walking to each other's places they all have a, like a backyard where we saw a 108 year old guy i should say wow he was taking care of his garden with the sequasa yeah. which is like a type of orange and he celebrated he showed us the picture of he celebrated his 100th anniversary driving his uh, motorcycle oh, wow so <laughs> Because that that was his uh, hobby, or he said he that was his his ikigai. Oh, okay. One hundred and eighty, he could not drive the bicycle anymore. That should be okay. One hundred and eighty is a lot. He was very proud of his picture of one hundred years old. They give you a certificate of being one hundred years old in Japan. So mm -hmm. he was 
He had both together, 100-year-old certificate and the picture driving his motorcycle. <laughs> the, the village is between the, the jungle and the sea. Uh-huh. So it's a very natural way to live. Yeah. Everyone was very active. And this is a little bit, it's not, of course, it's not science, but then I've been observing other villages when I go back to Spain and also there are places with old people. And this might be subjective, but I see much more people like idling around and doing nothing in other places in the world. Right. They were really very active, like right. uh, 90-year-old people like selling groceries. They sell their own stuff to each other. Very local local culture and economy. Instead huh. of going to the supermarket, they don't have a cent- like a big supermarket. They have places where everyone puts their stuff there. Uh-huh. Like there is a fisherman, they put the, the fish. There is a woman who is growing mangoes. She puts the mangoes there and they sell to each other. That helps, I think, to create community. It helps the diet because they are eating natural things from each other. It makes them keep being active. Kinds of benefits from this is little things in the environment that they live in. But then when you go back to the city, you realize, okay, I have the the supermarket is very convenient, but it's all food that is has been made, I don't know where, and I'm not meeting anyone. I'm just paying and I go back home. So there is no community building. Even in Tokyo, I don't know how it's in Vietnam, but in Tokyo, I'm paying with my smartphone. So I'm checking my smartphone when mm-hmm. I'm paying. And that brings again, like the stress of the, of the smartphone too. And then we went back to record with National Geographic to the same place. Our book is now famous in the village. They have it in the Tourist Association in display. So I don't know if that's a good thing or bad. We're bringing some tourists to, I think it's good because they didn't have their economy in this little village is not very good. If someone, there's many people who read the book and then they go to the village. So Mm -hmm. just be considerate with the people. Right. Once things open up and we're able to travel again, freely, or at least relatively freely, then that's definitely on my list of places because you're good with words and you really sold uh, visiting Okinawa. So we've been in a bit of flow ourselves, but sadly it's time for us to part ways for the time being. But we've been speaking with Hector Garcia. He's the author of Ikigai, The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life. You can find it on Amazon or all other fine booksellers on your smartphone. And we can learn more about Hector at HectorGarcia.com. We'll have extensive show notes talking about everything that we've discussed at JamesNewcombOnTrumpet.com slash Ikigai. That's JamesNewcombOnTrumpet.com slash I-K-I-G-A-I. Hector, this has been a blast. And I hope that we can connect sometime in the future and do a round two But until then, thank you for sharing your journey on the show and wish you all the best, my friend. Yes, we need a round two. 